John 15, 15. Do you know this one? Is this one already memorized? John 15, 15. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. Do you remember what comes next? For a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. That is so fascinating. All right, so here's the three big categories. Like if we were to divide this this whiteboard into three big sections. Section one would be the word from, saved from. What are we saved from? What are we saved from? Section two would be, well, I don't know if green is going to be clear enough. <laughs> Let her do her job, Tim. Let her work it out herself. Well, I don't know. Can you guys see the green in the back? Carl, can you see me? Am I? Okay. Can you see my bald head? Is it shining like the sons of righteousness in all their glory at the resurrection? So, uh, so the first question is, what are we saved from? And then the second question is, what are we saved for? And then the third question is, what does God get out of all this? When, when I was a kid, the way I would have answered the question, the first question would be one word. Can you guys guess what I would have told you as a kid? What are, hey, Tim, little, hey, little kid, Tim, what are we saved from? One word, hell. That's it. That's as deep as my gospel went. Say it again, Rusty. Destruction, that's a better word for it. It's a little more adult word for it. How about you guys fill this out for me? What are we saved from? Why would you answer that question? What does Jesus save us from? I heard ourselves. I heard somebody in the back yell sin. Is that correct? Did I hear that? Who yelled that? Death. Well, not to be picky, but they didn't, they didn't have the plural. They had sin in the singular. I'm sorry to be so picky. Dang it, Tim. Relax. What else are we saved from? I'm so picky. Sir, can you not destroy the property? <laughs> He's, I'm just picking on you. I'm so glad you're here, by the way. It's, okay. it's all good. What else are we saved from? Pain and fear. Yes. Yes. What else, guys? Sickness. Who said what? Oh, the grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? Judgment. What else? Should I call on people by name? No, that would be too mean. <laughs> Think about your own walk with God. What's precious to you that you're saved from? Fear. 
Yeah, fear. Condemnation, which I think is a subset of judgment, but it's a more living, present, daily reality. Yeah. Lust. We're going to name specific sins. We can. But that's, that's in the four category. Mark. Oh, man. That's precious to you and me, isn't it? The, the um, loneliness of isolation. The word alone is, is really good yeah. for that. Bro- our brokenness. This is much better than my one-word answer I would have given you as like a, an eight-year-old. Thirst and hunger. I think I know what you mean by that. Like, like where our souls are, are yearning for, but we can't have. There's no, yeah. Somebody said, what? Did I hear something else? No, you retracted a comment, or were you talking to Jacob? Okay. Discontentment. Dis- oh, you were filling out. Okay. You're doing awesome, Sherry. Emptiness. That's a good word for, for Kate's, I think. Like a spirit of grief. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of the verse where Paul says, we grieve, but not like the world. We grieve with hope. So we have rescued out of a hopeless, despairing grief. Yeah. The wrath of God. You could put that right next to hell, or you could separate it from hell. I mean, it could be a, a, but that's, dude, that's a big deal. Sometimes those of us who have a very, very new covenant-dominated vision don't want to talk about that one because we're afraid it's going to misrepresent the Father, but it's a deep biblical theme. How about what are we saved for? Now, what we could do is take every single word we put in the from category and flip it into its kingdom opposite that we are the beneficiaries of. And, and I think one of the deepest upgrades that can happen in our gospel is when, we, is when we begin not just to think about what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. Yeah. Like, for example, a lot of us, We go, what's the cross about? Forgiveness. But forgiveness is just a means to an end, isn't it? Can you imagine if the whole of your relationships were only about who sinned against who lately and whether you're sorry and whether you've given it up and are forgiven? That relationship that's just dominated by who sinned against who and whether we're okay is just barely hanging on. A good relationship, the point of forgiveness is so we can get back to enjoying the fellowship, which is the point. Which means forgiveness is just a stepping stone to something more important, which is union with God, right? 
That's what we're saved for. Don't do it, Tim. Don't do it. Clean up on aisle one. Now it looks bad. Looks like I leaked. Let me read you what I got. These are Tim's sort of Tim coming up with his answers to what are we saved for and what are we saved other way around, from and for. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved for the love of God, the fellowship of God. We're saved from slavery to sin. We're saved for the freedom of grace. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't you dare be a slave anymore. We're saved for freedom. We're saved from Satan's kingdom. We once belonged to the other kingdom. We're saved for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is Adam and Eve in the garden. Without sin being the issue, relationship is the issue. And we're here in face-to-face relationship with God with good work to do. And we like our work because our work satisfies our souls. Okay, save from the tyranny of self. You guys, I was so happy that that was one of the very first things you said. That makes me very happy. We're saved from the tyranny of self. We're saved for God's image in us. Who is God? God is love, self-giving, sacrificial love. What are we predestined for? To be conformed to the image of his son. You weren't the deep, you know how we say things, oh, I'm deeply mean, so selfish, I just need less of me and more of him. It's like, oh, please get an upgrade in your theology. What did I say? God's image. Yeah. Conform to the image of his son. So when we say things that I don't like, like, I just need less of me and more of Jesus. No, he had less of you when he had none of you, but he decided more of you would be better than less of you, so he made you. The problem is not less, the problem's not you, the problem is sinful, you, you conform to the wrong image. But the real you is the you in Jesus. The new you is the real you. The old you has died and is not you anymore. So stop identifying it as the real you. That's an upgrade, isn't it? That's a theological upgrade. Stop repenting of being you and repent of sinning. Difference. Stop apologizing for who you are and learn who you are. Oh, see, that's too long of a talk. Okay. We're saved from alienation from the Lord for belonging and acceptance and friendship. We're saved from wandering in the wilderness of purposelessness. Man, do you, do you feel that in our culture? Why do you think kids would just go and like steal from a local store and get high and stay high all the time and not care? Is it because nobody hugged them enough? Or is it because they have no sense of purpose in life? If nothing matters and when you're dead, you're dead. Why not? Screw it. Why? Why shouldn't I do whatever I feel like doing now? But purpose provides a complete... Yeah, that's a whole separate sermon. We can fill that thought out later. We're saved for created design, purpose, and calling. We're saved from purposelessness. For some reason, that one has always been huge for me. Like, when I got saved, it was actually less about sin and hell 
and more about what am I here to do? What am I here for? Right? Like I asked, I asked chat GPT, chat GPT and I were having an argument, right? Remember this? And, and I was mad at chat GPT and I said, you're annoying me. And it said, I, I'm, I'm in, I said, I feel like you're doing this, this, and this. And he goes, I'm incapable of having an opinion at all. I am simply an algorithm whose primary function is to answer questions. And I said, primary function? I'm kind of envious of chat GPT. It knows its primary function. I said, chat GPT, what's my primary function? Do you know how many people don't know their primary function on planet Earth? Probably most. And then Chad GPT was like, your primary function is to live a meaningful life, which is defined by you. And I was like, you don't even believe in truth because your programmers were postmodern relativists. And then we got into a fight again. Okay. We're sa- <laughs> you can't fix stupid, but you can make fun of it a little. Save from the despair of death, death as the end. Save from the despair of death as the end, or death as the fearful unknown. Isn't that what death is if you, if you don't have a concrete hope like, we, like, a, like a Christ follower has? Death is either the end or the fearful unknown. But for, for us, we're saved into a life no longer bound by the fear of death because death is transferred over into just a doorway Right? You guys know Bill Sammons, pastor of Eagle's Nest for so many years? He said he was really struggling with fear of death one day. And the Lord, he was sitting outside like he was under a tree. And the Lord said, okay, why don't you walk out of the shadow of the tree into the sunlight? And he goes, why, Lord? And he goes, just do it. So he walks out of the shadow into the light. And the Lord said, that's what death's going to be like for you. Was that hard? Was that scary? He's like, no. And he goes, well, there you go. That is something I think only the resurrection of Jesus can achieve. To where death is stripped of its finality and fear. We're saved from the punishment, like a fearful punishment for sins, not only for forgiveness, but the relationship that's the point of forgiveness, as I said. We're saved from sin on earth now and hell forever. We're saved for a life led by the Spirit on earth, and as a part of the eternal kingdom of God forever. And you could fill that out really, really, uh, for, for, because it's not, we're not floating away to live in a no body on a cloud playing a harp. No, no, no. The vision is we're going to rise from the dead, and God's kingdom will be on planet earth, but planet earth will be rid of all the things that now harm and hurt, and sort of, what's the word? No more sin, no more sickness, no more cancer, no injustice, no more crime, no more lying, no more death, no more sorrow, no more enslavements of any kind. That's the vision. No more negativity. How you doing up there, Sherry? It's okay if that doesn't fully get... It's all good. It's all good. It is what it is. 
So Teresa Lowell gave me an article this last week where the author quoted Job 22.2. You know how I love repeated numbers, right? And here's another 2.2.2. Job 22.2, where the question Eliphaz asks is, of what profit is man to God? And, that is, and his, his point seems to be zero. How can, how can a human ever be of any real profit to God? And, his, and he says, he can't. Well, that's, that's fascinating. That's kind of a dark. And, he, you know, and he's one of Job's comforters who is basically saying to him, Job, God can't be in the wrong. So clearly, if you're suffering, it must be your fault. Which is false. Job is a picture of Jesus. The one who is the truly righteous sufferer who's suffering not for his own sins at all. But actually his suffering is a redemptive thing on behalf of others. But he asked the question, Job 22.2, of what profit is man to God? Now, here's the reason I love that question. A lot of our gospel understanding is, is more focused on people. What do I get out of it? What am I saved from? What am I saved for? But what I love about that question is, wait a minute, what about God? And, and I think it, it shows like the verse that we started with, John 15, 15. Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends because I'm able, I'm able to really open up and tell you everything. I'm able to get something out of this relationship with you. I'm able to show you my full self. I'm able to show you the Father. I'm able to give you the pearls of great value because you're not hogs that are going to trample them underfoot. I'm able to share my secrets with you because you're not going to just, meh, treat them like cheap nothings. Now, I like that it says, I no longer call you. Because I think all of us start as the servants where we learn his will and we learn to do his will and we learn to say, what's next, Lord? And we learn to say, is this how I should do it, Lord? But at some point, the values, the voice, the pattern of God stops just being something we're copying when Jesus says it and it, and it forms us so that internally we become the kind of person who now thinks like this. We can anticipate what Jesus is about to say because we know the kinds of things he would say. And every parent knows this is the goal of parenting. A small child has to be told what to do. The hope, the goal is that the child internalizes those values and grows into adulthood, and now you don't have to slavishly tell that kid what to do. And that, that they're able to have less and less rules because the values are inside of them. And the great joy of every parent is not having a kid in their own image and likeness in the sense of they obey you. No, the great joy of every parent is having a kid whose personality uniqueness surprises you, but whose values are correct. Does that make sense? So what does God get out of all this? 
Let me ask this question. Can God be surprised? You could put that question on the board under a third category. What does, yeah, yeah. Now everything else is pretty much under the third category. uh, Green's a little too light. What does God get out of all this? Let me ask you this question. Can God be surprised? Bunny says yes. You're not so sure? Stan's like, oh, that doesn't even make theological sense. John's like, ah. Hmm. Interesting, Mark. Jesus was surprised. Why was he surprised by the centurion's faith? Because he didn't expect that kind of faith from a from a Gentile. Now, why? And he was also surprised by something else, Mark, directly related, unbelief. Where was he the most surprised by unbelief? And why was it surprising to find unbelief in, among the Jewish people? That doesn't even make sense, though, does it? Because we've already established God knows everything. So how could Jesus be surprised? Let me, and you go, well, that, but that was Jesus, Tim. That's different. That's different. That's different. But let me, let me raise a question. Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, offer your son. Your one and only son whom you love. Don't, get, don't, don't even be thinking that we're talking about the other one. Oh, I thought that was interesting. The one, the, your one and only son whom you love, offer him as a burnt offering to me. Now Abraham lifts the knife and God's like, stop, 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 stop. And then he says this, now I know. Now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. What do you mean now I know. There's a kind of knowledge that, can, that even God seems to only have when we're in action. Or Genesis 11 makes no sense. There's this huge tower. We're going to build a tower and reach to the heaven. We're going to scale the heights. We're going to be immortal. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God says... I've heard a rumor, I've heard a rumor that y'all are trying to build something. I can't hardly make it out from here, but I'm going to come down and see, and, and then I'll know. What do you mean, then you'll know? Why would you have to come down and see? Aren't you God? There's, this is really fascinating to me. God relates to us in ways that theologians would not, would not know what to do with. That's right. The Bible breaks the rules of theology, is what I'm saying. That's contradictory, Tim. Maybe so. Maybe so. But faith has to live not in the box of perfect theology. Faith has to live in the broken world of a God who is experienced and who needs to experience us to really know us. What does God get out of this? He wants to know us and to be known by us. C.S. Lewis says, I doubt God created the seemingly endless universe for any other reason 
than to create a platform in which to have children. What does he get out of this? Some people say, his will done, his perfect, glorious will. All right, thought exercise. What if you could just snap your fingers like Thanos? You could just snap your fingers and you could get your way. Do you think God's powerful enough and God's intelligent enough that he could just snap his fingers and get his way? Yes. I do too. So why doesn't he? What's so great about free will, though, Gail? Is it okay if she answers your question? She's Gail for the day. Because he wants what? You said the word love. Yeah, he wants us to love him by choice, not him making us. Hmm. So if I hold a gun to your head and say, you will love me, is that love? Meaning, can I really believe the love you're giving me under threat of punishment? And can I make a law? Can God make a law that says, I, I demand you will love me or you will all burn in hell and have that produce genuine love? So can fear of judgment ever produce what God made us for? So can the law ever achieve what God wants? Never. Because he could have just made robots, guys. Wives, if you could snap your fingers. If you could snap your finger and your husband would suddenly be exactly how you want him to be, would you do it? Are you serious, though? Because he would suddenly do what you, what you, what, like he would just behave. Listen. I heard a guy say, uh, I heard a guy say, God could snap his fingers. We would all love him. We would all love him. And then there would, nobody would ever go to hell. And the guy said, as a parent, as a, as a mom, as a dad, wouldn't you want to snap, would, wouldn't you use your divine power to say, we'll just, when, nobody's going to ever sin. The end. Conversation over. No one goes to hell. Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you use that power? And everyone in the, in the class or everyone in the conversation, you feel this ache in your belly. And, the, and the, Jerry Walls was the guy's name. And he said, God has that power. God thinks it worth the risk of eternal hell. And for God, it's not a risk, is it? Because he knew we would fall before he created And you go, well, why even put the stupid second tree in the garden? What is he thinking? What is he thinking? He's thinking what we're talking about right now is my speculation. He can make robots. Parents, would you not want to snap those fingers and say, my kids are all be in heaven? But here's the problem. Let's say they're in heaven. Let's say you have your Stepford husbands, because there was a, a book and a movie called The Stepford Wives back in the day, which is this metaphor. 
where all these husbands in this town got the grumpy, uppity, argumentative, unsubmissive woman, and they all, one by one, sent them off to the secret room, and they came back. Babe, would you like anything else? You want me to fluff your pillow for you? Here's your supper. <laughs> Vacuuming. It was a 50 years ago kind of a theme, so it was a little, little different than now. And it was terrifying. And at the cost of, of their wives actually being themselves, their wives were killed in the process, but they got the perfect wife. And the whole thing was a metaphor designed to get us to step back and realize you don't want what you think you want. Amen. You want a real human, flaws and all. To, to look at you and know you and choose you when they have other options. God considers it worth putting us under grace, not law, because he's less scared I might sin than he is I might not learn to love. That's weird, right? Do we think that way? Do we think that way? And I know we don't because when I came to this church at the beginning, one guy was like, those women in here, they're wearing low-cut tops and, and I just don't need to lust anymore. You need to make a rule so that those women won't cause me to lust. I said, let me get this straight. First of all, I didn't even notice that. I didn't even notice that. But because you have an issue... Their freedom needs to go away because you have an issue. So now, because you don't trust them to manage their freedom well, you want me to make a rule to control them because that scares you. Our anxiety about how other people are doing is a source of a lot of manipulation in their life, and God's not that way. God's a good parent, so he knows about punishments, consequences, and rewards, but he's not manipulative. Nor is he a perfectionist, nor is he judgmental. In fact, the judge of all the earth is the least judgmental person you've ever met. Okay. Sherry's like, what do I write on the page, though? Snap the fingers? I don't know. Listen to this verse from the repentance psalm. Psalm 51, 16. You do not delight in sacrifice. David, what are you talking about? God commanded sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, Psalm 51, 16, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What are you talking about? God required the burnt offerings. What do you mean? He says this, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He says, I don't want... The prophet has insight into the purpose of the command. It's not really what you're after, God. David says, that's not really what you're after. If my heart's far from you, but I bring an offering, I didn't fool God, right? If it's, if it's like Valentine's Day and I go to my wife and she says, aren't you going to kiss me? And I say, do I have to? I'm guessing the next thing will be a stiff arm. No, you do not. No, you do not. Not like that. Why? What's the point? You not only have to kiss me, more importantly, you have to want to. 
right? That's God. I want your heart. I don't want your duty. I want your delight. I want your devotion. I want you to see what I see. I'm all in love with you. I actually delight in you. There's more thoughts, Psalm 139. I have more thoughts about you than the sands on the seashore. Linda gave us little vials of sand a couple years back with a Psalm 139 reference on it. And basically, here's the problem. If you took just that little vial of sand and I dumped it on my desk and it was my job to count it, that would be frustrating. And God says, I have more thoughts about you than there are on all the beaches. All the little... God's all in. He's not in question. His affection's not in question. He's 100% in. He actually likes you. And what he's really interested in is for us to freely volunteer, not slaves who do our duty, but friends who treasure him. Okay, so God wants to be known. He wants to be known. Love can't be coerced. Love can only be won. Every single one of us in the room has a key to our heart that God has designed. God's given you a key to your heart. No one has the authority to take it by force. I can hold a gun to your head and say, you know, make me a sandwich. That would be an awkward request. I can hold a gun to your head and coerce you to behave a certain way. But you know what I can never make you do? Even if I kill you, I can't make you love me. And God himself won't violate the key. God himself will not violate the key to your heart. When I'm doing inner healing prayer with people, I call that the key of David because David was a man after God's. And when David took the city of Jerusalem... He entered through a sneaky water shaft that opened up into the very center of the city. So he opened it through the inside. And so when I'm doing inner healing prayer with people, I'm often praying, Holy Spirit, give me the key of David. Because each person's key is different. And sometimes we've lost the key to our heart. Sometimes people need help finding the key to their heart. Sometimes we've been hurt and burned and disappointed and discouraged and we're so jaded and we're so cold and our heart's like a dried up old rotten peach that we forgot at the back of the fridge. And we need help finding the key. And Holy Spirit loves to do that work. So I'm like praying, God, help me find the key. Because you can't treat everyone the same because no, because people aren't the same. Show me the key, Holy Spirit, to their heart that I can get them to open to you Because I know if they'll just open the door a crack and you start to get in, they'll learn to trust you and they'll invite you in more. And eventually, it doesn't have to be today, but eventually even those back rooms and those basements and those skeletons in the closet and those areas they're ashamed of, eventually, if they walk with you, they'll trust you. Why do you think faith is such a big deal to God? Without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. In fact, you have to have faith trust. My, na- my next door neighbor who's, who's uh, in heaven now, Mr. Barry, he went through some painful divorces and things like that. And he says, tell the people at church, love means nothing. I was like, well, I'm, I'm probably not going to tell them that, Barry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to lie to him. 
But then he finished the thought. Trust him. Trust. Tell him trust is everything. I said, oh, I get what he's saying now. No matter, no matter how much you treasure each other, if you don't take good care of each other and trust each other, it's going to break. Amen. This is why faith is the issue God's looking for. I need you to trust me so you'll stay connected to me even when you don't understand. Are we good? Was that a, a, an introduction to a, a category? Thank you, Bunny. God, God doesn't want to snap his fingers and he won't snap his fingers and make his will done on earth. Because, you know, think about it. The mountain, there's the mountain. It's smoking, it's burning, it's full of fire. There's, they blow a trumpet, everyone's terrified. Nobody even wants to go up on the mountain. His power scares us off. But there was a different mountain where instead of displaying his power, he displayed his weakness. And in his weakness, suddenly, now, he's drawing all men to himself. So instead of demanding we worship, he's demonstrating his love and letting this show us we can trust him with unlocking our heart. He wants to be known and he wants to know. Prayer team, can go, you can go on, come on up. Thanks for answering my questions. I love the unpredictability of asking you guys questions. It's like, like with kids, right? It's like with little kids. This guy says, I think I said this the other week, didn't I? The, okay, I'll say it again, though, just because it makes me chuckle. The wife says to the husband, babe, would you still, yeah, babe, would you still love me even if I was fat? And he says, of course, right as he takes a drink of his coffee. And the little girl in the background says, but mom, you are fat. And he spits his coffee all over the computer. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen when you open the mic, right? What do you guys got? Um, I just, like right when Tim was finishing up, if there's anybody that's struggling with any kind of addiction in here, um, I want to pray for you because that, that's what came to me. So, addiction. yep. So during worship, um, <laughs> I can't do a backbend. <laughs> so um, during worship, this is what I heard the Holy Spirit say, that the prison door is open. He needs you to step out, and he will saturate you. Excellent. What's going on, Pink Floyd? <laughs> knee pain. Um, anyone who has pain in their knees? Excellent. Nope. All right, stand for a benediction. What? Oh, you here too? Oh, it's just prayer, just regular prayer, whatever, for whatever. So if you're a generic person that doesn't even have a name tag, just a, a vague. Do you want to praise out? No, you don't. Okay. Holy Ghost. Next time. Holy Ghost, we thank you for your love. We ask that you would help us to start thinking that way, thinking about not just what do we get out of this, but you, you have feelings, Father. You have feelings. You have feelings, Jesus. You have feelings, Holy Spirit. What about you? What a selfish relationship where I would only think about me and not my wife. What a selfish relationship where I would only think about me and not my kids or my friends. What a weird, selfish relationship where I only think about me and not my Savior and the Father and the Spirit. So upgrade us, God so that we exist 
to know you and enjoy you, and you get what you are here to get out of our lives, even more, even more than we might expect. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. If you need prayer, come on up.